it's Jennifer. Welcome back to another episode of The Connection Podcast. I cannot wait to share this next guest with you. Uh, Zephyr Wildman and I met at a yoga teacher training and we immediately bonded over inappropriate humor and a lot of giggles and tears. I think you will see some of our love and um, our mutual respect in this podcast but let me tell you a little something about Zephyr. Zephyr Wildman has been a senior yoga teacher in London since 2002 and has been on the Yoga Campus Yoga Teacher Training Diploma course since 2005. Zephyr currently teaches at the Life Center in London, privately, on online platforms, and at London-based treatment centers for addiction, depression, and other dependency problems. She is a yoga ambassador for Armala and Lululemon and teaches for the Gates Foundation in London. Zephyr also has experience in practicing deep tissue massage therapy since 1991, and I can attest she is very skilled at that. I've been on the receiving ends of those hands. Zephyr continues studying with her main teachers, drawing on their living wisdom of yoga and passing those lessons on to her own students. Most of all, Zephyr is just a hilarious, loving, kind, compassionate human being. I'm so proud to call her my friend, and this conversation was so special to me. We touch on um, everything from grief. If you're dealing with any sort of grief or loss right now, which I know a lot of you are, this is going to be such a wonderful conversation for you. Um, so many healing tips in here. Uh, we talk about what it means to live freely, uh, to live a free life, and really important, we talk about transition and dying and how society could benefit from a different perspective on death. There's a lot of giggles as well, maybe a tear or two. I am so honored to present to you Zephyr Wildman. So how are things in London? Oh, they're really good. They're really good. It's definitely an interesting kind of weird one because, you know, as much as I've been focused on, you know, dealing with the pandemic here in the UK, I'm also paying attention to what's happening in the U.S. because of, you know, my family being at home. I'm originally from there. You know, I've lived longer in the U.K. than I have lived in the States. So both, it's been an interesting one trying to hold space for both points of view. You know, the U.K. has been so generous and so um, uh, careful with their people where it feels very volatile um, in the States from my perspective. And um, how, you know, the first part of the lockdown, we were stuck in Morocco because I was meant to be teaching a yoga retreat. Unfortunately, I brought my family for like a little weekend before my yoga retreat and we all got stuck for almost six months. And so that was really bizarre because it felt like reverse refugees that I was in this beautiful place where I do my yoga retreats just outside Marrakesh. But I felt so freaked out because we didn't know what COVID was. Yeah. The whole country completely shut down. We weren't allowed to leave the property. We saw four people over six months besides the four of us. And um, and then so coming back to the UK, it was a real weird, like, oh, my gosh, we can get Deliveroo. We can get Amazon <laughs> delivery, you know, like certain things. And I feel like this time has been um, really full for me. I've, I've really envied people who have said they're really bored. I've been very productive and <laughs> definitely, yeah. <laughs> have you been bored? Well, it's I've been using this time. Uh, I don't even know why I had to qualify this. I haven't been using it wisely. It, it was a rough year, but it was a lot of personal. I haven't been bored. Um, 
it was a lot of personal growth, but I also don't have a family to take care of. Um, you got a kitty cat. I get a kitty cat to take care of. Yes, yeah, she's been... Uh, well, I lost my kitty cat during the first... That was that was kind of what propelled me into, like, a deep, deep grief, which I have I have notes for Zephyr. It says, notes, Zephyr. Grief, yoga. That's all I got. <laughs> Those are my notes. Um, so this is a good actual segue into talking about grief. Yeah, my first kitty went missing in April of 2020. And... You know how in love with Zeus I was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mr. Zeus. Um, so that was really hard. And there was a, I had to, like people are talking about death of a grandparent or something. And, and, and I know this seems so crazy and likely insensitive to people who lost people. But like for me, the death of my grandparent was easier. It, she was 90 something. She lived her whole life. And I didn't live with my grandmother day in, day out. Like, I think if you're single and you have a pet, those are your, those are your people. <laughs> Zeus was my person. And, um, and he was wild. Like, you saw pictures and everybody that knew Zeus, he was a wild man. And, and I, did, I wrote a whole chapter in my book about it, about it was more of a leaving. And I think he really was here to teach me. I, I think he was less of a, a, a pet and more of a teacher. And when he left, I really... Like, all these old wounds of abandonment came up. Like, abandonment. Full on. And grief. And, you know, you know me. And I, I've had my issues with death and dealing with death in my own way. And um, that, but that really, that kind of grief is, for me, was overwhelming. Mm. No, I could totally. And I don't think you can quantify grief. And you mm. can't compare it. You know, I think the grief that you feel just shows the capacity for your ability to love. Yeah. And, you know, the depth of your love for an animal, for a child, to a grandparent, to a job, to a relationship, to um, a status. You know, like we can become involved in anything and our capacity to fully dive both feet in and love that. Um, it's going to hurt. And I think that is the hard thing that, like, I felt, I realized, I went, oh, my God, I don't want to ever love anything like that ever again because the pain is so much. But I think it's your capacity to love and, mm. and then be brave enough to hold that grief and discover more about what does that love say about you and where did it touch and what does need to heal? What do you need to understand? How can you unpack it and unravel some, either it's kind of our root system of old stuff or it could be generational stuff. Yeah. I, I feel. So it's like, it, sometimes it is just the immediacy of just like facing how your life has unfolded, but also there's some deeper stuff that, it, it opens up an opportunity for us to create some clarity, some insight, and then some possible healing so we can grow and move forward, hopefully bravely opening ourselves back up to love again, knowing that this is a part of loving is that everything changes. Everything is impermanent and it will change. And how do we hold space for that and not get so attached to shit, I don't want to make this hurt again. Mm. You know, I, I have had to wrestle with that, that kind of contraction and expansion around that. So 
I, I, I think, you know, watching you do that so gracefully and yeah, it's like, it's my kitty cat, but it's your cat. And it was a special relationship you guys had. And you can't quantify that and you can't compare or else all of a sudden there's that, that slogan, compare and despair, because you know, there's always someone that has worse off, but yeah. it, it then negates your story yeah. and it, you know, it minimizes it. So, well, can you explain a little bit about what happened? Are you open to talking about yeah, what happened course, with your life? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think there's many factors to my story. I grew up in a very hippie community with a lot of yoga, with a lot of drugs, with a lot of partying parents and there was a lot of kind of extreme um, personalities as well as extreme circumstances. And I, I grew up really poor. There was a lot of violence. There was a lot of drink and drugs, like I said. There was a lot of nakedness and all sorts of kind of things that I, I would, you know, I was going, my trajectory was to go to medical school and not become a witch like my mom, yoga teacher, massage therapist, and a trauma therapist. Uh, no way. I'm a no, never. Never. Rebel. And, and I met my late husband who was on tour, who was in the States touring with Eric Clapton. And um, we just met in a cocktail bar. I was a cocktail waitress. Dance floor parted. There he was. And we were drawn to each other. And, Isn't there a song um, about that? It, I believe there was. You one. were working out a waitress in a cocktail bar. I digress. Just had to throw that in there. And um, it quickly turned around within just knowing him. I knew. I knew he was going to be my best friend. I knew that he was going to be my life partner. And I packed up my whole life and came to London at 19 and completely had a meltdown quite soon afterwards because I was a little girl from Boise, Idaho, and I was in London where I had no one around me that I could distract myself from myself. So physically, I had an ailment that brought me into yoga where my bones melted together. I couldn't walk. I was melting from the inside out and my foundation, my emotions, my, my spiritual health, and it propelled me into yoga and it propelled me into the 12-step fellowship of Al-Anon for friends and families of alcoholics and addicts. And my husband, Adam, was two years in recovery when I met him. And he was a heroin addict and he was a very successful one. And he was clean. And he spent 12 years clean in our relationship. And he was touring. He uh, was touring with Grace Jones and, you know, touring around the world, being, you know, on a tour bus with a bunch of musicians, smoking weed, doing coke, drinking. It's too powerful. And he relapsed. And he relapsed for about a year and a half or so. And we got him in and out of treatment centers. And finally, he got out of his last treatment center. The Adam I knew, the Adam I, I fell in love with. But I realized that, you know, I needed to let him go because I couldn't love him the way he deserved to be loved. And he couldn't love me anymore the way that I deserved to be loved. But we were best friends. We had two children. Um, and we were going to co-parent five days after he came out of the treatment center clean and sober. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And this was small cell lung cancer that mastitized in his liver, in his brain. 
And he was given a prognosis of less than two weeks to live. So I said, come home. Of course, you've been my best friend. Come home. We'll take care of you. Mm -hmm. And having children four and six and then watching that and him not dying, then him being put on opioids, morphine Mm. immediately, which is like a free pass for a heroin addict, which then unfolded to smoking weed, to drinking, to taking sleeping pills, then coke to stay up because he was afraid of dying like it got so unmanageable and I was teaching full-on being a mother and I had to make huge boundaries fortunately his um a dear friend of his and his mom we put him out in the countryside in a home and get you know got him on this anti-cancer diet you know they started controlling what he was ingesting and by four months into him living with terminal cancer, he decided to do radiotherapy and chemotherapy. And that was like, oh my God, because we've been living one day at a time. And that gave him another six months, which he toured with Grace and, you know, gigged with Ronnie Woods. And it was a rocker. And, you know, he left, you know, stylish, in and out of hospice, about to die, not dying doing tons of drugs and hair falling out and just the mess and the beauty at the same time, Mm. being on stage and having my girls in their princess outfits dancing around stage, watching their daddy be their daddy, watching Gracie Bum Bum shake her, you know, beautiful body in the sunshine in Hyde Park. And, And, you know, finally it was, you know, nine months after he was diagnosed that he finally was put into a hospice and was put on, um, uh, put into a coma. And he had like three huge drivers. This, this, like one driver put someone under, two drivers would kill a horse. Three drivers kept Adam asleep. And it was really, um, really traumatizing you know I'm smiling because I have done so much work around recalling these memories and seeing the kind of craziness but also the beauty and the lessons of it all but he was lying there and he was just skin and bone and he hadn't eaten or drinking anything for five days and it was almost the full moon and he was always connected to the moon he's like I can tell it's a full moon and I was like Adam Adam tomorrow's the full moon. It's almost there. If there's nothing on the other side, then it's better be being here. But if there is something on the other side, just let go. And all of a sudden, with me just like losing it, finally just having enough, he let go. And his last breath was like, ah. And I looked and I woke his mom up. He had one more breath in him, but he'd already gone. And his body then took the last breath and he was gone. And the weird thing was, was he was obsessed in the time of the lead up to his death. He was like, would grab me and be like, suffer. The angels came. The angels came last night. I'm not ready for them. I don't want to go yet. I'm not ready for them. I'm like, Ads, what do you mean, the angel? Look at all the feathers outside. I'm like, honey, those are pigeon feathers. You keep feeding the pigeons. They're pigeon feathers. No, they're angels, angels. So the night he died, I got into my car 
my windows were rolled up. I get into my car and I'm sitting there and I'm looking and I'm just relieved. I'm just so relieved. And I open my eyes and what is on my steering wheel is a bloody white feather just sitting there. And I just burst into tears. And then I put my little feather, I have a little Ganesh that rides with me on my dashboard and so the feather's there. And um, every time like auspicious moments kind of come, I'll find a little white feather on me. And it's just like a little sweet way I connect to ads. Now, I tell my grief story mainly because two things. I think there's a lot of people, there's such a huge taboo about loving an addict. Um, loving someone who has such a shadow side. And I was one of those partners that I had very strong boundaries. And, you know, I was quite brutal with creating boundaries and punishing by withholding the love and saying, no, this is enough. And I learned how to make more compassionate boundaries to say, I love you enough, but no. And I think Al-Anon had really served me in creating a network of support to help guide me and support me to process the anger, the resentment, the fury, the confusion, the loss, and the grief I felt in real time. My yoga practice was there to physically, somatically get it out of my body, energetically express it through form, breathe in and out and use that transformational fire to kind of shift the mental negativity, the emotional distress, the instability I felt in my body and the disturbances. So I think I needed a lot of support going through that. But I did love someone and he was a beautiful human being. And he left and he left two beautiful girls. Mm. And the grief that I felt was relief at first, but it was through the eyes of anger, which served me and motivated me. And then it took me about four years to work through my anger, resentments of the mess that Adam left, the, the fallout of all those choices. So I was envious of those people who like love their partner and lost. You know, you loved your kitty and you lost and you grieved immediately in the loss of that love. It took me years to get to that point mm. where I felt safe enough to then start to grieve the loss of the love that I had. And at the same time, so six months after ads passed, I fell in love with a man that I've always loved since I was 12, you know, Christian, that our, <laughs> our lives crossed. He was living in Bermuda. I grew up with him since I was 12. He's from Boise, Idaho as well. And he was living in Bermuda. We've always been friends. And he's like one of two guy friends that I grew up with that I've just like Totally. They're my friends. They're my mates. They're my buds. Solid the dude he is. Love, I fell in love with. So at the mm. same time of grieving, I was falling in love. So the complexity of our human experience and telling these stories, it's not straightforward. There's not a simple A, B equation that equals C. Yeah. But the work really is, is that nothing will ever prepare you for this but everything will and it's just like anything to birth to aging to disease to death 
nothing prepares you for it, but everything can serve as a teacher to prepare you for it. So that is my little story of like, you know, my grief experience. But I, like I said to you in the beginning, this is that my capacity to feel my grief, my sorrow, my pain of my loss, I saw as a power because it meant that I had that same capacity to love. And it kept on reminding myself. And I hated the platitudes. This will make you stronger, Zephyr. You know, (laughs) this will serve your your growth. And it's like, I don't need to be stronger. Have you, did you hear my life story? I got, I already went through enough. Like I deserve better than this, you know? Or it's like, I, one, one woman came up to me and goes, um, it's his karma and yours. Ugh. Thanks. Like, I really need to hear that. I mean, the thing is, is even if that's true, you know, like, <laughs> shut, shut up. It's, it's not, not the moment. to say. And it's like, I don't think we as a culture in the U.S. and or in the U.K. have had training to support those who are grieving. We don't know what to do. We want to run away because we see someone in pain and think, oh my God, I might contract it and feel it. (laughs) Or we don't have the boundaries and then we hijack someone's pain or we are competitive in it and kind of go, well, grief Olympics, here I come. Let me tell you about my story, you know, and then feeling kind of, and it's just the weirdest thing. And I think more people need to talk about it and share. And I think this is the beauty of this age of podcasts, of storytelling, of sharing that other people get to see is like oh my gosh I'm not alone yeah and then oh I connect to that and what did you use during that time that served you to get from that point of self-awareness into an accepting space like oh shit this has happened like okay I can either resist it you know kind of be blinded by it and like deny it or disassociate from it or just run away and use something else um you know that whole raga dvesha and avidya and it's like no embrace it how can we embrace it and what tools can we embrace it how can we sit with it what does it need to say how does it express itself what is it unique to me and then like you were going it's like what other like tentacles, what other root systems is this attaching to that is not only with this story, but my previous stories that go into my family origin and then into my kind of family origin. And so what is this and how can I use these tools to best serve me to move forward, to heal, to um, transcend old patterns, old mm-hmm. stories, old things that kept me stuck and transform them as I have this little evolutionary upgrade. But the problem is, is, is that as soon as you feel like, oh, I got it, life goes, oh, wait, let's try it again. <laughs> you <go through> <laughs> you're sure part. about that? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think you said, you know, you can either sit with the grief. And that was a lot of my... April, May, June, probably a good three months of just sitting in it every day, trying to some days just feel good by watching Shit's Creek, you know, trying to give myself that grace. Uh, you know, in a way, I'm lucky it happened during quarantine. I didn't have to go anywhere. I didn't really have to function out in the world. I could just sit and try to feel this. I don't even want to say deal with it. I could just sit and feel it and and be receptive to the healing um, but I think some people, like you said, they'll, they'll kind of deny it 
um, they'll run away. But the other thing is, is a lot of people are fighting it too. Like I'm going to, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fight whatever's come up. And I don't think that gets us anywhere either. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I guess it could. But well, it's uh, just that kind of forcing a solution, and it's like, yeah, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, if you gotta force it, it's probably a shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I do love, I do love one of the things our teacher has said. One of the, I do have like gems that have stuck out and that have stayed with me, and one of them is everything is really pushing you towards her or the divine, and. That's the, what are you glimpsing from this? What kind of healing is happening? And, and something from somebody else that I was speaking with is like even disease, emotion and disease is kind of a, a body, our body's way. It's not actually disease. It's actually our body and healing in some way. And can we look at it like that? Like, okay, there's something that happened and our body's trying to heal. And these are all just symptoms, right? The grief is the symptomology of healing. It's a way our psychosomatic, physical, mental body heal is through emotion. Mm -hmm. um, and to deny them is one thing. And then to sit in them is another thing too. Like, you know, how long, like I said, I, my grief lasted for about, I think, feel like three months. And eventually it's like, okay, I got to put on my big girl pants. Mm -hmm. I can't just keep wallowing in this and saying, this is the way it is. This is the way my life is. I'm never going to, I'm never going to. You know, and I think to have um, either your own internal forces that are like, okay, time to get up, time to, to just start some sort of forward momentum and, and, and strides towards changing and healing. Or you have somebody that's like, all right, I'm not going to let, I'll, I'll, I'll sit here and cry with you for five minutes and then you're done, you know, and, and try. Isn't that the kind of, that um, there's a beautiful... Uh, analogy like of a perigraha of non-possessiveness that a beautiful butterfly comes and lands in your hand and it floats and it opens and flaps its wings and you're delighted and you're fully present you're like wow you're so beautiful and you you're here with it and all of a sudden you're like hey there's a butterfly in my hand and then you sense it about to leave and you have the option like holding right. on to it and crushing it or allowing it to go. And I think that is the lessons of impermanence is, is that, you know, your kitty cat, Zussie, coming into your life and you fully embrace that relationship. You fully was there with it. You enjoyed his wildness and his, his playfulness mm -hmm. and his fierceness and the way in which he moved and you had a beautiful relationship. But there was a part of you that was like, no, I don't want you to leave. But there is a part of us that knows that this is the lesson, that we need to live open-hearted, minded, and handed. And we, she was there, the divine, mm. you know, she was in there. And she was teaching you. And so it's that same kind of thing of just like Adam being there. I have to put my children in there. I have to put my Christian in there. I have to put, you know, my health in there. I have to put everything in there. And then that just teaches us to kind of live. My daughter goes, mom, you only live once. <laughs> like, no, you only die once. You live every day. 
for living. Snap. Leave it in there. You know, it's like feel it. Yeah. Give yourself the permission to really touch. And I think that's where it's hard in our society because we are so addicted to this doership, especially us asana yogis. It's like that do one more vinyasa, this doership, produce more, do more, be more, feel more. And it's this kind of like this, you're not successful or you're not, you know, someone if you're not being seen doing. And what this COVID time has gifted us is time to kind of go, what is really important in my life? What matters to me? And I love what really in the beginning, and I actually was teaching this when I, I was preparing to teach this when we got stuck in Morocco. So it was like, oh my God, this is going to be this year's life lessons. It's that Gandhi quote that says, your beliefs become your thoughts. Your mm -hmm. thoughts become your words. Your words become your um, Deeds. Uh, actions. Deeds, yeah. Your actions become your habits. Your habits become your values and your values become your destiny. This moment, we are some total of, of all of our experience, all of our choices. So in this moment, we look back at what we've been valuing. What is most important? What habits have we been choosing? Are, are they skillful? Are they meeting us um, to meet our spiritual needs or pulling us farther away? And what, um, you know, thoughts are we reinforcing? What words are we speaking to ourselves with? And then what core beliefs are we reinforcing? And in that way, it was like, this is such a great opportunity to go back in and kind of go, what, what do I want to create? I don't have the normal work life. I don't have the normal going out into restaurants and shopping and interfacing with this to distract me. And I'm so busy. We had to sit. And there's a handful of us that were like, yes. <laughs> and then there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I don't have the tool set to deal with this. I only have a hammer and everything looks like a nail. And it's like, <laughs> not everything is a nail. We need to use more than more tools. So blessed that, you know, the teachers and all the work that we have done, that we've provided, you know, our toolbox with a lot of tools that we've been able to navigate this time yeah. more skillfully and that we could pass it on. And I felt that that, that was a big calling for me to kind of go, Oh my gosh, I'm finding it really hard, but I'm going to use this tool. So I'm going to offer this tool as a service. So this is what I'm going to teach today. <laughs> Yeah, our life always informs our, at least for me, our, my life has always informed my teaching. I rarely go into a class and I'm like, okay, this is the blueprint. I created this two days ago and we're going to do it today. And I was like, yeah, but this happened and this is what my experience has taught me. So this is what I'm going to share. And, and for me, teaching has always felt very uh, instinctual like that. Never like pre-programmed. Um, so I don't know, maybe I'll, I'm, I'm revealing myself as a complete phony that I have probably have never, oh, I have that too, that I've never planned a class, but there you have it. People, I don't, I'm a farce. People come to class to see a perfect gen. I think people come because they want to see an authentic, radiant woman who is messy and fun and full of feeling and expression and full of wisdom and joy, kindness and heart. So I think bring it on all of it. And I think that's the reason why we connected is because it was because you always make me feel good about myself. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> and you 
always make me laugh. Oh my god. Like to tears. To tears. So, okay, I'm going to share the story of how we met. Okay, I might have to interrupt in my, I was going to say who's going to tell it, and then you tell it. So, what we, we went to Colorado to go study with our mutual teacher, and I arrived, and immediately I felt like I was put in a position of competition with another student, and I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. <laughs> And I got that other student's name muddled up and I just felt like such like, oh my gosh, I am so messy. All these people have their stuff together. Why am I here? I don't belong. And I went out back on the swing set and sat there and just looked out at the mountains because I miss the mountains, the Rocky Mountains where Mm. I'm home. This felt like home, but I didn't feel like it was home. And I was miles away from London. And then you come out, storming out, open the door, slam, sit down. You're like, oh, I need a shot of whiskey. I didn't shat for a week. I was like, oh, my God. Okay, we're going to be friends. Is that what I said? All I remember is, yeah, I was like, I mean, my attitude was pretty much like, fuck this yoga shit. And there's a, there's a chapter in my book about this experience, too, at this whole training. And you're in it, by the way. I haven't sent it to you, so I hope you don't mind. You're in the book. <laughs> because you're a big part of that, those five days and that story. Um, but I had just, like, in a different way, I was, like, just fed up with the sanctimonious, kind of pious attitude and, like, that spiritual superiority that can just be overwhelming, particularly in large groups and with people you've been studying with. And there's not, no one in particular. I think I've always been torn between these two worlds, these, this spiritual and material world. Oddly enough, Tantra and what we study is trying to bridge that gap. But when you're in that incubator of five days of practice and, and kind of like we didn't go to India together. We went at different times, but when I was there, it was just like, I was in the shrine for two hours. I'm like, good for you. <laughs> Aren't you amazing? And I'm like, which I've done at, to the shrine in India and coming out. I remember coming out um, from lunch and being like, fuck this. And I, I just remember sitting on the, the swing and I'm pretty sure I gave something or somebody the middle finger and and we're like oh we're gonna be friends <laughs> and we just commiserated over our you know mutual grievances but that's part of it right that for me that rebelliousness that that questioning um that like refusal to just buy into indoctrination has always been a part of my um, essence, I guess. And I think I mentioned this in another podcast. I grew up in a very strict family, very completely opposite of you, right? Everybody thinks that they want, like, I, I would think I'm like, Ooh, that's the way I wanted to grow up. But now looking back, you see the benefit. Like I, I'm so grateful for my parents. And I, I also think that's on the other side of healing is a lot of gratitude. I'm always questioning why, Fine, I'll take my punishment. Fine, I'll do this if you give me a good reason. If there's not a good reason, 
I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, um, and then you have to, there's a, there is some humbleness to, to know that you don't know and be open and willing and then seeing what works for you. But at that moment, I was very much like, because it was the final training of our whole course. That was the end, yeah. the end training. So that was like eight years, seven years maybe for me. Seven? At that point? My favorite moment was you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> wait, I don't even know if I wait. Cause I, do I want you to tell this story? <laughs> I just fell in love with you at this point because... You arrive late, rolled your mat right by the door, and we finished with practice, and you burst into tears. And I turned around, and I just grabbed you and squatted and was holding you and rocking you. And people were trying to leave the room, and they were having to climb over us, and you're just like... Oh my god, it's so embarrassing. I'm like, honey, they're just jealous because we're getting our money for <laughs> That's right. I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> that everybody was just like climbing all over, <laughs> leaving. <laughs> oh my god. There were so many tears shed in, in that training. Yeah. Um, but again, there is a certain, that is a physical manifestation of real emotions, real grief, and that deep wound that, you know, we both were dealing with other, you know, different things. And to feel safe enough amongst, you know, that, and, and to fall apart like that, thank God you were there. If I didn't have you there, I just think I would implode. Yeah. Because I was going through my own stuff, and it was just too much, um, too soon. And then it, that was the catalyst that unraveled so much to actually now. I am so grateful how life has unfolded the way it has. And it's always funny because there's so much like in the moment of serious pain and intensity and the realness of life stuff we're like no I don't want it and then on reflection we're like dude that's the reason why we needed to go through that yeah and it's like I have that human disease of forgetfulness it's like in those moments can I please now remember that this is going to serve me to awaken to her the gift of bravely sitting in that fire is trying to help me but that resistance, that, you know, going into disassociation, going into, you know, addictively trying to pacify myself by trying to, you know, go shopping or look on social media. It's like, be with the feelings, be with the realness. That is where true transformation happens. So, yeah, I, I, there's a really, really good book. So to just give um, your listeners a practical tool. There's a book called It's Okay That You're Not Okay by Megan Devine. She has it on Audible as well. I knew when I was going through my grief, I couldn't read, but I could listen. And that is a really amazing book because the first bit of the book is all about the person who is grieving. The second chapter is all about supporting someone who's grieving. And I think we don't have a culture that is yet skilled at being able to support each other. Mm. 
and finding more tools and people like this, what you're doing will provide a tool and, mm. and for people to kind of open up in different facets of what you're, you're bringing in. And this will help inspire and point people in different directions. Maybe they hadn't thought of. So I think it takes a village, you know, to raise an individual. So having different, um, uh, tools to be able to help us is key. So that was a book that really, really served me. And I've read a lot of grief books and that was probably the best book I, I could recommend for a practical use. Mm. You touch on something. It's, it's been coming into my world and consciousness the past few days. Um, uh, there's this dance teacher, dance teacher, kind of like fluid dance or uh, five rhythms type free dance that I've done. Her name's Kate Shayla and she lost her father and she sent out an email um, yesterday. I guess it's about a year anniversary since her father passed. She's from London, the UK as well. And, uh, you know, her, her father passed without her being there, unfortunately, because of COVID, which to me has been the greatest atrocity of this whole thing is people dying alone. And this is kind of where I'm going with, with this um, line of discussion. Um, she said it, it really has amplified um, what I see as a need for uh, death doulas. Yeah. The ushering, we have birth doulas and the ushering in, we don't have anybody guiding the ushering out because we're afraid. Everybody's just this fear of dying is like, and, and also I have a client who works for a big company in New York and she told me, um, I'm doing some coaching with her and she said, oh, I'm also, I'm a trained doula. And I go, oh, that's amazing. I have a neighbor who, you know, is dueling and, and kind of had, wrote a book and she's kind of famous for it and I should put you in touch. You, oh, oh no, I'm a, I'm a death doula. Mm-hmm. And I, I had I hadn't hadn't even known that existed. Yeah. And then you know I was working I was talking to her and then Kate's email came in and then I knew we were going to have this conversation and what's happening in the world and I follow Zach Bush and there's got to be a different conversation around dying. It yeah. is it is birth is the ushering in and death is the ushering out and they are really no different. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I, I was actually fortunate that I, it wasn't a formal being a death doula, but I was with clients, students that I've had for years that I got to support them in their transition mm-hmm. over. And it's something, and I've been a birth doula too. So I've been able to receive eight babies into this world and help the moms transition into that experience. So both experiencing birth and also death and supporting those around as I've experienced both of them, trying to pass on the tools that really helped serve me was really important too. And I think that is a new career and it's one that is a necess- is so necessary because we're all going to face death. We're all going to be touched by it. And if we don't have the tools to be able mm-hmm. to, you know, prepare ourselves. Um, and I think this is where like Buddhist practices come into play in that kind of preparing people 
in that transition has been really essential in the kind of yogic process. And then also in that way of yoga, of practicing impermanence and getting that in our consciousness that this will change. And, but on a collective whole, we still saran wrap, you know, meat products. And, you know, we don't ever go to a slaughterhouse and look at the reality of death. You know, we don't go to the nursing home and, you know, the hospice and go and sit with people who are dying. We Because it's, it's just like the same reason why we don't post bad stuff on Instagram. No one wants to see that. They just want to be seen with unicorns, kittens, and rainbows. Why would anybody want to put their dirty laundry out on that? Because it hurts. It's painful. And it's... It, but if we start normalizing that, and that's like the biggest thing that I feel is so sad because I've been doing NHS classes, so yoga classes for um, the medical staff, and I've been in conversation with a lot of the students who have been really, really traumatized watching these people die alone and trying to offer them just some support to transition over to say your life matters. The people in your life love you. I'm so sorry they can't be here. That on the living and that with the person who is transitioning over is so traumatic. I, I again, I, this is the one, <clears throat> and we might have differing opinions on this, and I'm okay with that, but like, I, I really don't think that immunization and our government is what's going to prevent a pandemic. I think this was an overall, it's getting over our fear of dying and, and understanding the importance of living life. I'm not, I'm not here to freaking prevent myself from dying. I have a friend that just posted, I don't get in a car to not get in an accident. I don't play sports to not get injured. I didn't come into life to not die. I came to live and I want to get the most out of every day that I can. I, I can't sit here one more day in fear of this thing because there's, then there's going to be another virus and another variant and one more thing to fight against and protect yourself up. And then armor, 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 armor. No, 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 no. I'm stuck. I'm paralyzed by the fear. And I cannot, I, I can't do it. And, you know, I think in the beginning it was fine. Um, we didn't know what we were dealing with. And again, to me, there's not enough evidence. When I ask the question why, there's not an overwhelming evidence of why you're, I'm, we're still not allowed to do these things for me. So again, and, and then I think you have, everybody has that individual choice to make what they want to do with their bodies and how they want to respond to this. But um, the bigger lessons for me, I'm looking at big picture, is that mm. we have got to face, what's the, there's a Sanskrit word, isn't it? The fear of dying? Or that everything coming back, I know we've been taught it. I'd have to look it up. My brain's not recalling it. Yeah. <laughs> but but that, that everything, if you if you start to pull on the string of fear. A vinivesha. A bit, I thought it was a vinivesha. Yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't, you'd say it much better, so I didn't want that word to come out of my mouth. <laughs> Because it would have come out like a minute. Ah, But that once you pull on that string of fear, 
And I go, okay, so why? Why am I afraid of that? Why? But why is this making me afraid? Why? Why you keep pulling? And everything just kind of goes, boop. It's a fear of dying. Yeah. And, and the end and- of this physical body and this life. And when you have, for me, when you have this connection to another part of yourself mm-hmm. that never dies, mm-hmm. then that fear can start to, if not go away, because I don't think it's ever gone until you're gone, right? But it, yeah. it dissipates. And then these things that hold you back and prevent you from living and make you afraid of feeling and, you know. Abhini Vesha is hardwired in our psyche. It is a very primordial response to if you stand up to a cliff edge, if you're wise or if you're naive, if you're educated or uneducated, you're going to have a reaction of like, I need to preserve this life-giving embodiment. Why would I get up to that 100-meter drop? So you step back. But what the point of facing our fears is starting to look at where we are, what we are valuing, what, what we are choosing, and what thoughts and what our core beliefs are, that whole Gandhi quote again. And it's, it's really a f- highlighting. Um, there's a Buddhist practice that, and it's really provocative. And I do this a couple times a year with my students that I'm, I have them see and feel a paper being delivered. And it says, notifying you that you're going to die in 28 days. And I get them to really make that real for them. And would you change anything? What would you pay attention to more? What would you appreciate more? What, what would you, you know, how would, how would you speak? Who would you speak to? You know, that idea of like, what would you um, choose to do with your time? And if there is something different that you would do, do it. And it's all sorts of questions that it poses if you know that you're going to die in 28 days. And that's where it's like with Adam being diagnosed and saying, you got two weeks to live. He was like, another day I'm alive. I'm going to go out and and live it. However, he was living it as an addict, which Mm. was very destructive. And so it wasn't spiritual and that pious, but it was what his story he died the way that he died not the way that I would want to die but that was his story and for me to take that away from him I had to make boundaries to take care of myself but I also had to see that that was his dharma yeah that was his path and his soul had to you know evolve in some way to understand his demons and he was dealing with them in his own way And hopefully, as his expression of finally getting to the point of letting go, he passed away peacefully. And he passed away, and he finally accepted and and let go. And I've been around where they don't accept it, and they fight death. Yeah. And that's really traumatizing. And people who are in the living, seeing their loved one fight death, their body fight it, it's really hard. Um, And... It's, a, it's just a, yeah, it's an interesting one of looking at fear, but then looking at we are the only ones that are placing ourselves in the confinement. It is like putting fruit flies in a jar and then opening the lid. 
they still think that they're in there or you put an animal in a cage or you put like, you know, a donkey or an elephant on a stick. They think they're tethered. They're strong enough to be released until they realize their, 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 their um, mental blockages mm -hmm. and concepts that have limited them. So I feel that, yes, we feel restricted by our government and these, um, these measures to reduce the outbreak. But I think a lot of people have looked at it as almost like a Vipassana practice in that way in which, okay, I have a choice. I can see how I can free myself. And yeah. I have loads of friends who go into prisons and teach meditation and yoga, mm. and they are literally imprisoned, but feel yeah. ultimately free because of the work that they do through practice. So I think as you face one's fear and you live, and you live with these limitations, but knowing that you are so much more. Yeah, the, a, a couple points on that. I, one of my favorite quotes is you can be speaking to your fruit flies in the jar analogy and the horse tied to a chair or whatever. Um, one of my favorite quotes is you can be so free, you can choose bondage. Yeah. And, um, and that's really describes, I think, the human condition. We are free and we're choosing to like tether ourselves to something. And, um, and, and I, I do, I also agree with you when you said this time has, you know, we might be feeling like we're constricted and have restraints put on us. But I've, I've always said this was, um, I have another teacher that I worked with um, leading up to this. And the last time I saw him was when Zeus had, dis had disappeared. And he said, this is, he, he predicted, um, I, didn't think, I don't think it was hard. He's like, this is your time to really level up. And it was, I had to get free in my mind. I had to free my heart from a lot of the anger I was holding and the grief. And now it's like, doesn't matter what the government does. If you, and, and this is how a lot of the Auschwitz people serve. This is how they survived. In their minds, in their hearts, they were free. Nobody could take that away from them. Yeah. And that belief, you said it, you know, your thoughts create your beliefs, your belief creates your, your dharma, your life. That belief, you almost feel, you feel, it's very empowering. Mm. It's like, okay, this is really shitty, but I'm not going to focus on the shitty because really I'm free in my heart and in my mind and that mm. from there you I think too that that diminishes the fear you're like well if I don't need Instagram likes to feel accepted I'm free to say whatever <laughs> but I want and and there was a lot of letting go of friends mm. you know it's like I know who my kind of my, my ride or dies are. And that, that came to light during the pandemic because I could say, I, I don't feel that's how I know when I'm in presence with you or Joe or my friend, Nada, you may not agree with me, but I feel free enough to know that you're going to love me anyways, or we can have a, we can have a discussion about it or even an argument about it. But at the end of the day, you're not walking out of my life because of this. Yeah. And, um, and that was a that was a 
big lesson for me because to me, when you expressed anger, the way I, I was raised or the belief system that I had, whether it came from my raising, I don't know, you know, usually it comes from our upbringing is that an expression of anger means it's over. Mm. A relationship is over. Mm. I did not know how to deal with anger. Mm. And I'm like, I'm not an angry person. That's mm. not true. <laughs> that was, what I came to learn was that was not true. Um, I was, I was, and anybody who's driven with me in the past could probably see I am that it was true. that it was not true. <laughs> it reminds me of this attachment theorist Kuzlini, who was stated in saying, "It's not survival of the fittest; it's survival of the nurtured." Mm. And I think there is a difference as we. Uh, you know, seeing each other go through some really big stuff over the years, what has evolved us to be where we are is that we were nurtured, not only by the people around us, but we developed this ability to reparent and re-nurture ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that is key um, to being able to face this stuff. And one of my teachers, Tara Brock, she says it so much more eloquently, but she teaches the acronym of RAIN, R-A-I-N, mm. of R is to recognize and, and acknowledge your thoughts, your feelings, and the sensations and the actions of what's going on. And A is to allow them. Allow it. Give it some breathing room. Practice with it. Yeah. Share it. Experience it. Bring it into the light. And then the I is to investigate even more, to inquire into the roots of what this root system is pulling up, to take a vichara, to be able to study that svadaya, to understand and accept ourselves. And then the N is to nurture with non-judgmental awareness. And I think that is a really practical tool to be kind of go, okay, that's a simple little trick to be able to face whatever I'm facing. And how do I nurture myself? How do I love myself? And I was gifted this little technique is, is that when that little, that self of me mm -hmm. feels really hurt, feels grief-stricken, sorrowful, the wounds feel so deep, so dark, I look at her, little Zephyr, as a little girl, mm -hmm. and I ask her, like, what do you need, honey? What's going on? And I talk to her. I'm like, I'm right here. I'm not leaving you. Yeah. You matter to me, and we're going to do this together. And then for me right now, I call on my future self, and I see my future self going, Zephyr, you're doing such a good job. I know this is scary shit. You're shitting yourself right now, aren't you? <laughs> you're doing such a good job, girl. You got this. We're going to be fine. Trust me. You're going to be looking back at this, and you're going to be like, you did brilliantly. Well done for showing up. So I think those are two, like two really good tricks to learn how to nurture ourselves yeah. when we're facing the fire of whatever is burning us right now, that darkness that feels like it's going to swallow us up. And it helps us, that loving kindness helps us cross that bridge of our own humanity, that dark chasm that, you know, our uh, being human creates. And, and it, it, I can't, heal by myself I heal in relationship mm -hmm. and like you said it's like I don't need friends 
who are going to say, I will only love you if you believe this, or I will only love you if you see it in this perspective. I'm like, no, call me out, check me out. Let's have a conversation. And I'm okay with that. And I'm secure enough in myself and with you, but I love you and I see you and I see the essence of you. And then to be able to then have a greater community and resources of like a therapist and group therapy and, and dance and yoga and meditation and cathartic other ways of therapeutically adjusting that you have other tools. And yes, it's a privilege to be able to have access to this. But I think more and more of us being able to share these different tools and different books and different um, philosophies and methodologies it will seep into a greater population that it might touch the, those p people who are marginalized, who don't have access to this, or who are just really struggling and feel completely alone with it. So it's great that, you know, we start having conversations around it. What worked for you? What worked for me? And how can we find more people who share these kind of yearnings to be true, to be real, to kind of be messy and be clumsy and be dirty and be dark but then in the same light know that we have the capacity that is so bright and so warm and so joyous at the same so it's living life you know 10,000 arrows of sorrow 10,000 arrows of joy how can we be that to navigate both and I too I'm a bit fucked off with people who think you know they've arrived in enlightenment retirement and there's some spiritual superiority <laughs> And that you're like pious and you, you can only be like this. I'm like, no, I'm going to live my dharma the way that I, you know, this yeah. is who I am. And I'm not going to pretend anymore. Well, I had that. There was there's so much you touched on. I remember, you know, part of my process was there's just been a lot of deaths, you know, figurative deaths of like, I'm the fitness girl. I'm the health girl. I'm the, I came back from that training. I'm like, I never want to see these mala beads again. I never want to wear Lululemon again. I, I'm identifying with something. I, I put this, I played this role to heal myself. And now I'm done. I don't need this anymore. So ultimately, I do think it is, yes, it has to happen in community, in relationship, because that helps you kind of realize what you do. For me, it always was like, oh, yeah. I think I want to be part of this group. I want to be part of the inner crowd. I get in. I'm like, I'm out of here. You know, no, that I tried, I tried those clothes on. They don't fit. I'm much more comfortable in my baggy sweatpants in a torn up t-shirt in a dance studio, you know? Um, and I, I didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I didn't have to wear the identity anymore. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, the kind of, being in a relationship was helpful, but ultimately, like, you could give people all the tools and they're still not going to help themselves. Like, I think whether it's dharma or karma or whatever it is, some of us are brought into this world with a, with a burning desire to evolve and expand and to never stop doing that until that moment of letting, ultimate letting go of death. And, you know, there's a lot of resources. There's, like you said, there's a lot of books. Podcasts are free these days. So many of them. So many people giving helpful information. But that spark of desire to transform your own pain and to get out of whatever you're in has to come from the individual. Mm -hmm. and, and it reminds me of another, like, 
whether it's a quote or just a saying, I don't know if anyone said it. I have a lot of these things I'm floating in my head, but you got to save yourself before you can save the world. And so I'm really, all of these people with their signs and their posts and their standing ups. And I'm like, okay, what have you done for, you know, is this coming out of your own need? And, and I, I really feel like ultimately the healing has to be on the individual level before and, and the more people that do it on the indi- individual level, then it becomes the mass consciousness. What I feel like the times we're in now is just like this huge collective anger and grief process. Yeah. And, and yeah. the only way out of it is for every individual to do the work, at least the ones that have the time and the resources. And t- Whoa! Did you see that? No. A butterfly flew in here, just crossed. I don't know if it crossed the camera and is now sitting. Well, it's now sitting in my little utility box. An orange and black butterfly. And now sitting with us. Oh, she just climbed out. I'll have to take a, see if I can take a picture. Um, This is always being in this office down here is always a reminder because things fly in like birds and it, oh, it, and, and they, they keep flying like this butterfly looking for a way out and the doors open. It's always a great reminder for me about that concept of you can be so free and yet you're choosing bondage. I'm just taking pictures because this is amazing. Zephyr, you're right here with me. Aww. In butterfly form. Open your wings, little one. Yeah, when you experience pain, as we know in yoga, and you resist it, it creates more suffering. But yeah. if you bring a loving presence to the pain, that is freedom. Yeah. There is freedom. There is the means of liberation in that way. Um, and I think it's just those people who can point us towards a more loving perspective and hold space for us and either, you know, share and kind of go, if they can do it, I can do it. If they can do it, I can do it. And give, you know, and or just be like, you know, keep showing up, keep showing up. You're doing great, you know, being that cheerleader. And I, I, I think we do need a community of people we do need but then we get to choose that we get to choose who we are um a part of yeah that's the beauty of it and people come into our lives at auspicious times just as our you know way in which we cross paths right at that same time was meant to be and i think our stories definitely supported us as we went through a journey of change of loss of grief and of a death in in many forms so i think um it it uh, there's key people in our lives who've been anchors who are kind of like you're on the right path Can yeah you say yeah or yeah. L- like little sign like you said you you get those feathers you know yeah i, I believe and that belief and that faith have have kept me alive, quite mm-hmm. frankly. Um, mm-hmm. I think despite the pain 
and whatever was happening at the time, there was always this strong underlying faith that I'm okay. Even if I, even if my head wasn't telling me it, telling me that it obviously told me a lot of things that ran the complete antithesis to that. But I think my heart and, and I don't know, you know, that's where you don't know where it comes from. I didn't grow up with religion. Um, I didn't grow up with any sort of formalized indoctrination to anything. And, and I'm actually, again, looking back, so grateful for that, that I got to found, find my own way to it and my own path mm. um, from an amalgamation. A lot of it obviously influenced from Tantra and, and yoga and spirit and meditation, but all sorts of teachers and, mm. and find what works. You know, I was really, somebody posted um, an article from the Washington Post about this new convergence of spirituality and conspiracy theory. And I guess there's a whole podcast called Conspirituality. And I, I know, I know generally the guys that run it. And I think I could listen to about 15 minutes of it. I mean, it's one thing to offer information and, and have an open debate, but it's another thing just to bitch about people that you don't agree with. And I, and this article came, you know, from a woman who, Granted, had some experience, I think, in in a spiritual group or whatever. But like, all of a sudden now, that is seen as woohoo, and what we're, all this stuff is seen as dangerous, you know. And I'm like, well, yes, there's always people on the fringes. There will always be people on the fringes. But I believe there's more of us that are using it in a productive, beneficial way that is making us happier, healthier, and more compassionate. And w- what good does this article do to, to make fun of or to attack or call people dangerous? Like, can we just focus on, or I don't know, focus on the good, focus on the positive. For years, you know, we kind of are like, oh, Christianity and... Hinduism and being Muslim and, you know, like all these different, and it's, you know, there's extremes to all of them, Mm -hmm. you know, but if essentially you're just trying to be a good person, connect to the light and love and support each other, it's an interesting time where human nature is imploding and it needs to happen, I think. This yeah. is kind of why we went to India at that time, mm. the Kumbh Mela, is that idea that this is the convergence and we're in a tipping point. We're either going to go that way or that way. And it's a choice, you know? And I think we're not really fully listening to the lessons. Our planet is not happy with us. We're not prioritizing sustainability. We're not getting together as a whole of being sentient beings and saying, we're all here doing the best we can. And it's still pitting each other against each other and creating this fear and monetizing Mm -hmm. it. And it's just, it feels really messy. But there are a few people who are going, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Yeah. I want to make sure that I can sustain a healthy, full and vibrant life. And so, like, it's an interesting one. 
But as long as we can practice connecting to that wakeful observer, as long as we can listen to that whispering wisdom and know it is true and authentic and keep practicing and, and um, showing up and embracing kind of what is, I think, you know, it's going to be okay. Even if it feels like it's not going to be okay, this too shall pass. Just, um, mm -hmm. I don't know where I was going with this. Clearly I got <laughs> off track, but... It, I, think, I think it ends up with you and me on a, on a farm, Christian, uh, catching fish, somehow still finding some alcohol to bring in, um, the girls doing TikToks with me, uh, still posting memes. I mean, I think that's... We have to keep posting memes. I think that's... I am now more known for memes than any of my work. Like, I didn't post quick enough one day, and I had a fleet of people going, where's my memes? Memes are what I wake up to. And I'm like, okay, okay. And I love the memes that you post about the memes, like, my life's purpose, giving out me. I don't know. There's so, there's so, so many funny ones. I can't. some guy up an elephant's cooch trying to find the best means for me. That was me. You know, like, the work that I put in. But I seriously, that is... It is so underappreciated, Zephyr, your work. Yes, In this is. world. And I think with grief, I needed to laugh more. I needed yep. to be amongst the living. I needed to be around people that were living and joyous. I needed to giggle. I needed to actually be quite sarcastic and take the piss out. Like, I was in the... Um, the um, supermarket and I had my six and four year old running around me and I'm trying to figure out what to shop and this builder came up to me and goes smile love life's not that bad and I went my husband died three days ago <laughs> and he was like so horrified I smiling and I was like thanks for making me smile really gotcha and I, and I just left oh god I had that so many times and I just got this really dark kind of like power over <laughs> taking the piss out of myself and my own grief. And it's, it's what has served me keeping going is my sense of humor and finding people who will share that. And because we're in COVID times, what will share that will be memes. And I share it a lot. <laughs> Again, I think that's, that's been the most healing part of our relationship for me is the laughter and the giggles and the, Oh, I'm missing my trips to London. I know. I probably would have been there twice by now. Oh, you will be back. <sighs> oh, my goodness. You will have adventures. I, I have faith. I know. I, I, I keep remembering that day when we were at, was it Chelsea, the market? And I was just dancing to the Pointer Sisters. Oh, that was up in Camden. Oh, Camden. Yeah, Camden Market. Yeah, no, that was good fun. I got some choice photos of you just <laughs> breaking down in the middle of the market. And, and that because it is Camden Market, no one, <laughs> no one batted an eye. They thought you were normal. Thought I was one of the performers. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And Boise. Oh, this was so nice and fun to chat to you like this. Thank I know, you. I know. Thank you so much, and I can't wait to post this. I will post all links in the notes. Um, anything you want to, any last messages, anywhere you want to point people, tips or tricks, funny memes. 
<laughs> you have to follow Zephyr on Instagram. At Zephyr. Yeah, my stories are filled with memes. My posts are filled with, yes, work and yoga and what I do and teach. But um, yes, my memes are very funny. Um, but more of just, you know, there's resources on my website um, for grief support, um, for 12-step fellowships of all sorts. Um, there's also links, especially in the UK, for psychologists, psychiatrists, to counseling, to therapies. I have a big resource page on there as well as recommended books to read. So it's there at ZephyrYoga.com. Um, and yeah, I, I think by you doing this and opening up new people to speak to, keep listening to Jennifer. I think you have Aww. a calling in which <laughs> can open things up for so many so well done girl well done and thank you so very much for asking me thank you all so much for tuning in to this episode of connection i feel so blessed by zephyr's friendship and i'm sure you see why i hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation as much as we enjoyed having it please see the links below for all the resources discussed and make sure to give this chat a like a review a follow whatever you feel like And tune in for the next episode with another one of my favorite women and teachers, Michaela Bohm. Until then, stay connected.